Good morning, everyone. There we go. If you want to make your way back to your seat, we'll go ahead and get started. Problem. So if you're new here this morning, my name is Brent Smith. I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central, and uh, we're certainly glad that you've joined us. Karen and I, my family, have been away for the last two weeks in PEI, and so for the last two Sundays we've enjoyed uh, being with Christ Central Charlottetown, and, uh, but it's good to be back, and this morning it's really good to be back after that worship, and the other good news is we put Beth Dreiza in our trunk and we brought her home with us, and so she's with us now uh, for good, so we're excited about that as well. So for the last uh, few months, We've been working our way through a series on uh, Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, on the armor of God. Next week, uh, we'll begin a new series in the book of Esther. Uh, but for this morning, I just thought that there was one more thing that needed to be said in uh, this theme of spiritual warfare and Ephesians 6 and the armor of God. Uh, just one more thing to touch on um, before we move on from this series. And so... Uh, let's read Ephesians 6, 10 to 13, and then, uh, and then we'll jump off from there into some various uh, passages. You guys can go ahead and, and put that up now. There we go. So Ephesians 6, 10 to 13 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. We pray that you would, by your spirit this morning, use it. Uh, to change us, use it to reveal more of who you are and what you've done in us. And we just pray, Father, that your spirit would, would work in a mighty way this morning. We thank you for what you've already done. We thank you for your presence in uh, our time of worshiping you. And we just pray uh, that you'd be faithful to watch over your word, that it wouldn't return to you void. In Jesus' name, amen. So Ephesians 6 10 to 13, we read, we went on from there through the summer and we looked at the armor of God that Paul lays out, that we, we've got a great enemy against us, we've got armor that he's given us, we can stand in the strength of his might, we're to put on truth, we're to put on righteousness, we're to put on the gospel of peace and raise up the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith and put on the hope, the helmet of salvation and pray at all times and we will be able to stand. We've unpacked that all through the summer. So for those of you who have been with us through the summer, hopefully we have a, a new mindset or a renewed mindset that the Christian life isn't just a stroll, that it is war and that we are called to stand in the midst of the battle. And if you think back, uh, way back, the very first um, sermon that we did in the series, I asked three questions that I think are good um, to ask regularly. The first one is, do I realize that I'm in a battle? We should 
realize that. The second one was, am I afraid of the battle? As a Christian, we shouldn't be afraid of the battle. Jesus is victorious. Satan is defeated. We're going to rule and reign with him forever. When we put on our spiritual armor, it tells us that we are able to stand, that we are able to extinguish how many of the flaming darts? All of the flaming darts, right? So we shouldn't be afraid of the battle. And the third one was, am I living like I'm in a battle? Is this understanding of spiritual warfare going into every part of my life? Is it affecting how I work? Is it affecting how I raise my kids? Is it affecting how I pray? Am I living like I'm in a battle? The life of a soldier looks radically different from that of a civilian. And so the fourth question that I felt we needed to add in to that at the end of this series is, what is the end of the battle? What does final victory look like? What will you do when the war is over? So do we realize we're in a battle? Are we afraid of the battle? Does our life look like we're in a battle? And lastly, that we'll look at this morning, what is the end of the battle? What will you do when the war is over? And our answer to that question is the same as every soldier who has ever fought, ever fought in any war. When the war is over, we go home. When the war is over, we go home. And every soldier longs for home. War letters written by soldiers back to their loved ones from most recent times, even back, they found some from uh, Roman soldiers in the first century writing back. They're full of two things, the brutality and the devastation of war and a longing to be home. In the movie uh, The Gladiator, there's a scene where Emperor Marcus Aurelius speaks to his general Maximus and he says, Maximus, tell me about your home. And Maximus replies, my house is in the hills above Trullo, very simple place, pink stones that warm in the sun, kitchen garden that smells of herbs in the day, jasmine in the evening, through the gate is a giant poplar, figs, apples, pears, the soil is black, black like my wife's hair, grapes on the south slopes, olives on the north, wild ponies play the, near the house, they tease my son, he wants to be one of them, and he keeps building in kind of excitement. And Marcus says, Maximus, when was the last time you were home? Two years, 264 days, and this morning. And Marcus says, I envy you, Maximus. It is a good home. Is it worth fighting for? And Maximus nods his head. So although ours is a spiritual battle with spiritual armor against a spiritual enemy, our feeling should be the same. When a war is over, we go home. And while we battle, we should be longing for that. It's a home worth fighting for. It's a home worth fighting for. Flip to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 13. We all know uh, Hebrews 11 is a popular chapter in the hall of faith. And in verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, 
that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They were seeking a homeland, but not an earthly one, a heavenly one. And God has prepared one for them. So hopefully through the summer, we have this new mindset that for the Christian, life is war. It's not a quiet stroll on the beach. And maybe you have a new view of yourself as a soldier dressed in spiritual armor. But I didn't want this series to end without showing you that yes, life is war, but our home is in heaven. And when the war is over, we go home. A soldier longs for home. And if a soldier doesn't long for home, it's hard to fight, it's hard to stand, it's hard to battle in the way that we're called to do. The song Home Sweet Home was the most popular song during the Civil War. It was sung by uh, Union and, uh, and Confederate alike. And it says, To thee I'll return overburdened with care. The heart's dearest solace will smile on me there. Home, home, sweet, sweet home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. For a while, the generals banned it because it thought that it would make the soldiers too homesick to fight. In actuality, it did the exact opposite. It gave them the motivation to keep going. If the promise of home is not there, it's easy to be discouraged and confused and frustrated and weak in the battle. But the promise of home is there. And like those in Hebrews 11, we need to long for it. We need to dwell on it like the Civil War soldiers. We need to sing about it. We have home, sweet home. As we occupy this world, it needs to occupy our thoughts. So our longing as a Christian should be a lifelong desire for a heavenly home with God. But that desire has a beginning, and it begins with Jesus. It begins with the desire to know the way there. And so if you flip to John 14, John 14, we'll bounce around a bit this morning just so you know. John 14, in the verse, first six verses, Jesus says to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know the way you are going. How can we... We don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And Thomas, in his uh, classic, another classic line from Thomas, he's like, we don't even know where you're going. So how do we know the way? Come on, Jesus. And Jesus is like, Thomas, I am the way, not only that, I'm the truth and I'm the life and no one can come to the Father except through me. So there is a place with Jesus that can only be entered through Jesus. He is the way, He's the road, He's the path there. So much of what I say this morning will be directed 
at Christians. Our hope as Christians is this heavenly home. But for a minute, let me talk to you who might be here who would not think of yourselves as Christians. This morning, we're talking about a wonderful hope. We're talking about a great home. We're talking about a promise of eternal life with God. And it's a future that is only ours through Jesus. Right out of the gate, Jesus, Jesus lays it down. No one can come to the Father except through me. Not you, not me, not anyone. How do we get home? It's only through Jesus. Nothing else will bring us to God except His Son, Jesus. Nothing else will bring us to God except through Jesus. Buddha will not. Muhammad will not. Your positive thinking will not. Your Bible reading plan will not. Your work with social justice will not. Your skills and your abilities and your degrees and your intellect will not. Nothing will bring you to God except Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And then he died on a cross and rose again to show that he was serious. He is the only way. One thing that fascinates me is when we ask the question, you know, uh, why aren't there other ways? Is that really fair that Jesus is the only way? One thing I love is the Coast Guard uh, rescue team, the Coast Guard rescue swimmers. I've seen some movies and some documentaries and some shows, and it's just amazing what they do. They get the distress call that the sink is shipping, the, <laughs> the ship is sinking, and within a few minutes, they're, the helicopter's in the air, they're ready, they're going out to the Bering Sea or wherever, and when they come up on the ship and they see the lonely fisherman there, and they drop the basket down for him to come in. I have yet to see a fisherman say, why is there only one basket? <laughs> he jumps in the basket because he realizes he has nothing and life has been offered to him. And he clings on to the sides with all that he has and he puts his full trust in that basket and the cable and the helicopter and the crew to bring him to new life. And in the same way, Jesus is the basket. If you are not here, if you are here without Jesus, the basket is available to you. All that I say from here on out is not yours, but it can be. It is available to you through Jesus. And just like the fisherman jumping in the basket, you jump into Jesus, you cling on with all of your life, and you put your full trust in Him to bring you to eternal life. That offer is available to all and to any. If you're not here, if you're here yet, if you are here not without that yet, it's available to you, and we'd love to pray for you. We'd love to help you in that. You can talk to us after. We'll make space for that. So we've seen the way there, but what is our home like? What is this home like that we've been talking about? I think one of the most ignored, misunderstood, overlooked, untaught aspects of Christianity is what our future will be like. What is our home? I have the promise of eternal life, but what is that? What is this home like? 
that Jesus says he's preparing for us. First, I think we misunderstand it. And for whatever reason, many in the church seem to cling to some unbiblical views of heaven, which does them more harm than they realize in their daily lives. An idea where we're just some floating spirits in some vague, mystical cloudland. Our view of heaven is so boring and so out of touch with who we are that when we're honest with ourselves, it does not feel like our home and we do not want to go there. I remember being a young boy and having kind of this low view of heaven where, uh, you know, it just seemed so out of touch with who I was. And, and I remember thinking, you know, that doesn't seem like very fun and eternity sounds like an awfully long time. And I'm not sure if I want to go there. But we need to throw off those childish views of heaven and realize that it is a home created for us. He's a good father and he knows what he's doing. For eternity, we will enjoy a resurrected life with resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth with resurrected friendships enjoying resurrected worship, enjoying resurrected service in the presence of a resurrected Jesus. Our human minds cannot contain the glories that Christ has in store for those who love him and how often we lower it to something far less than it is. As Jody came up and said, his hope does not disappoint. I guarantee you, you will not be disappointed with heaven. Not on year one, not on year 50, not in year 5,000. You will not be disappointed. Or we can just ignore it, focusing on the here and now of God's kingdom at the expense of the not yet. And I'm all for teaching about God's kingdom now and enjoying God's presence now. Yes, we need to do that. Absolutely, we can't ignore that. But as well, I recognize that life is quickly moving by. I just celebrated my 32nd birthday last week. The week before that, I was 16 and learning how to drive. And the week before that, I was 8 running around in the woods pretending to be Panthro from the Thundercats. Life is flying by, quickly flying by. And if our life now is as James said it is that it is a vapor that appears for a moment and then vanishes and we were meant to live forever then we would do well to think about the life to come if we're made to live forever and this life is a split second it's a weekend and it's gone then we do well to think about the life to come so far from being vague the bible tells us a lot about what heaven will be like some people think well we can't really know what heaven will be like, and that's true to a point, but the reality is the Bible does tell us an awful lot about heaven. Even by calling it our home, that tells us a great deal. It's not just a metaphor, it's a reality, and some of us didn't grow up in very good homes, but think of your home, remove all the bad, think of all the good, and then amplify it 10 million times. The rest, the comfort, the security of home, the community of home that it brings. Heaven is our home. There's no place like home, home sweet home.
Also, we learn a lot about heaven by what the Bible tells us is not there. 1 Peter 1.4 tells us that Jesus has bought us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. And if you flip to Revelation 21, Revelation 21, in the first few verses says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. We don't have time to get into new earth, but someday we will. I mean, someday we really will get into new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had, earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Behold, I am making all things new. Later it tells us that there's no sun or moon because of the light of the glory of the presence of God. That there is nothing cursed, there is nothing unclean, that there is no devil. Even with just the absences, we begin to lift our gaze on home. No sun, no moon, yet no darkness, no defilement, no fading, no corruption, no crying, no pain, no tears. No one will ever say, I don't feel good. I think I should get checked out. There will be no phone calls of test results, no devil, no flaming arrows, no schemes against us, and no death. No death. And then, when our imaginations start to soar of what life will be like in that environment, the Bible says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So do you enjoy what you know about God, about His plan, about His Word, about His creation, about all His works? You'll know it all perfectly in heaven. Some of us have a bigger gap to fill there. But we'll know it all perfectly in heaven. If you're tired, tired of warring against your flesh, against the world, against the devil, tired of fighting, tired of living in this fallen world, Hebrews 4.9 says that it will be a place of perfect rest. This week, I was outside after supper, I was sitting in the camp chair. Uh, the sun was shining, it was beautiful blue sky, there was a nice gentle breeze. The four kids are playing on the swing set, they're laughing, it's all good. The neighbor's barbecue aroma was floating over, <laughs> which is more enjoyable when you already have a full stomach on a, of a good supper. There's music playing, and I just kind of sat back in the chair, closed my eyes, and took a nice long deep breath. In the next 10 seconds, Aaliyah and Nathaniel were screaming at each other. Lydia walked in front of the swing and got drop kicked in the head. And when she got up crying, she peed her pants. We have temporary, temporary rest here on earth. 
We have times of calm, of relaxation, but they are never, ever complete. And they are always temporary. So then there remains a Sabbath rest <laughs> for the people of God. If you are empty, always desiring for something more, never full, even in your best times with God, still knowing a dissatisfaction in your soul. Psalm 17, 15 says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. You will be satisfied. In His presence is fullness of joy, and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Rest, satisfaction, and communion with Jesus. If you enjoy communion with Jesus, if you enjoy His presence, if your heart is stirred when you think of His great love for you and what He's done, His sacrifice on the cross, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, we already sang it, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, listen, we will always be with the Lord. And so we will always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. You will see Him face to face as clearly as you see me now. And as I see you, you will see Jesus face to face. If your thoughts are, man, I hope Jesus doesn't return before I get married, or I hope Jesus doesn't return before this or before that, you need to seriously uh, do a heart check to see if you're even a Christian, because we long to see Jesus. We will always be with him. This is the home that awaits us as we battle. This is the home to long for. And yes, we can't know everything of what our life will be like, but we do, what we do know should captivate us. And I can only look at so much in a short amount of time, so I encourage you to press into this. Don't be satisfied with misunderstanding or ignoring. Uh, don't be satisfied with having a low view of heaven. Get into God's Word. Lift your gaze to your glorious home and let it grip you, let it hold you, let it push you forward in the battle. The phrase, some people are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good, is attributed to American physician and poet Oliver Wendell Holmes in the 1800s and then turned into a song by another American poet, Johnny Cash. And this idea that for a Christian to think on heaven, to dwell on eternity, to be heavenly minded will ruin his effectiveness on earth. It can sound logical at first and makes for a great song, but it doesn't line up with scripture. It doesn't line up with Paul's life. It doesn't line up with the lives, lives of countless people through church history. When we read Paul in his letters, it's this glorious future, the promise of a heavenly home that pushes him forward. The overwhelming motivation behind all that he did was not found in this earth and in this age, but it was found in the age to come. He lived, and he stood, he battled with a heavenly mindset. 1 Corinthians 15, after a whole chapter of heavenly mindedness, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, 
Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 2 Corinthians 5, 9-10. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please God, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which, is the, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward to me on that day. In Colossians, he just comes right out and says it. He says, set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. Translation, be heavenly minded. Be heavenly minded. Far from saying that if we think too much on heaven, it will ruin our effectiveness here on earth. Paul says, you must be heavenly minded to be any earthly good. You must be earthly minded. Think on it. Let it constantly be in your thoughts. Let it be the lens that you look at your life with. Dwell on it. Set your mind on things above and not on things of this earth if you want to be good in this earth. Be heavenly minded. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Heaven is our home, a home we should long for, a home that should occupy our minds. And if we want to be effective in this life, we need, we must think of the next. So let me finish with this. What does having this heavenly mindset do for us? What does having this heavenly mindset do for us? Why is it important to think and to long for home, as we've been saying. First, having a heavenly mindset is the only way to make sense of suffering. It's the only way to make sense of suffering. Second Corinthians 4, 17 to 18 says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We have a light, momentary affliction, and it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Keeping our true heavenly home in view enables us to see our sicknesses and our afflictions and our suffering for the temporary things that they are. Even the hardest lifelong illness is really just a weekend with the flu next to an eternal weight of glory. In fact, I shouldn't even say that because that was a comparison and Paul just told us that it's incomparable. It's an incomparable weight 
of glory. Our sufferings beyond that are continually working in our ultimate eternal favor as they prepare for us an incomparable weight of glory for us. So as Christians, we can face suffering and we can face sickness and we can even face death and we can even face the grave because we know one who went in the grave and came back out. We can face those because of Jesus and the uh, great weight of glory that he has for us. It's the only way we can make sense of suffering is that it is light compared to what we have and it is temporary next to eternity. There are no tears. There are no pain. That Piemonte is out of work (laughs) because there is no more illness and there is no more sickness. There is no more medication. It is done. That's the only way to make sense of our suffering is that we have an eternal weight of glory ahead of us. The second thing having a heavenly mindset does is that it gives us urgency to our evangelism. It's so easy to be casual with sharing the gospel or to be almost corporate or strategic in a bad way with evangelism. But keeping our eyes on eternity puts an urgency underneath us. We're not playing games. Eternity awaits us. Eternity awaits every single person alive. Their life, like our own, is a vapor that appears for a moment and then vanishes. And when our eyes close here on earth for the last time, they open to Jesus and He is either Savior or He is Judge. It's either eternity with Him or eternity away from Him. And so when we do things like Alpha, when we ask people to come on a Sunday morning, we're not recruiting people to a social club. We're not just looking for more friends. We're not just looking for butts in the seats to grow a big church. Our motivation behind it has to be nothing less than eternity. It has to be nothing less than eternity. So we need to toss off our excuses. We need to let our shyness and our weakness be overcome by the eternal weight of glory that is stored up for us, and we need to share the gospel. We need to share the gospel. Invite to Alpha. Invite to Alpha. Invite to Alpha. Eternity awaits us all. Eternity awaits us all. Let let the thought of heaven inject an urgency into all our thoughts about sharing the gospel. We're not playing games. We're not playing games. Tom and the IVCF guys, we're not playing games. Eternity. Eternity. Eat eternity for breakfast as you go out on the campus. I don't know all that you do. Eat eternity every morning for breakfast and let it fuel all that you're doing. Thirdly, it energizes our efforts. It makes sense of suffering. It gives urgency to evangelism. And lastly, it energizes our efforts. In 1952, a young lady named Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters in the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island, determined to swim the 29 miles to the shore of mainland 
California. She'd already been the first woman to swing the, swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats accompanying her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. And when she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother, in a boat alongside, told her she was close and that she could make it. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. It wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered the shore was less than a half a mile away. And at a news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. 29 miles to swim, and she swam 28 and a half. As Christians, we need to have our eyes fixed on the shore. And the fog of life might roll in on occasion, but we can't lose heart. No matter how young or old we are, we're almost there. Some of us are closer than others. We're all closer than we'd like to think. We're only a half mile away. In the light of eternity, the shore is not too far off. So maybe you're tired, maybe you're weak, maybe you're hopeless, maybe you're tired of serving, you're tired of following God, you're tired of the sacrifice, you've grown weary in doing good. As you pulled in the parking lot this morning, you just said, I just don't think I can do this anymore. I'm just tired of it all. You're almost there. Don't let the fog block out the shore. We're all just a half mile away. And then it's eternity at home with Him. So let heaven inject hope into your hopelessness this morning. Let heaven inject hope into your hopelessness this morning. You're almost there. John Waugh, you're almost there. You're almost there. David Frazier, the shore is only a half mile away. The shore is only a half mile away. Keep going. Keep going. Kelly, don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in doing good. Let heaven inject hope into all that you're doing. The shore is only a half mile away. Zach Lewis, you're a young man. The shore is only a half mile away. When you close your eyes here, you open them to Jesus, and he will not disappoint. He will not disappoint. Is it all just fairy tales, or are we going to start taking eternity seriously? We press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Growing up in a country Baptist church, I had the pleasure of singing often, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. I'm glad we get a taste of that now, like we did this morning. I heard some shouts of victory. One day, we'll all see Jesus, and we'll shout the victory like never before. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for uh, preparing for us a home that's beyond anything that we can understand. We thank you for making it so available to us 
freely given to us. And so we just, once again, we want to jump in that life basket and we want to cling to Jesus. We want to put our full trust in Him. Where He is going, we can come. And He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we praise You for that, Jesus. We pray that anyone here that is not in that basket, that does not have their faith and their trust in Jesus, that they feel the work of the Holy Spirit in their life even this morning, and they would come to repentance, and they come to Jesus, and they would be welcomed to, just as we were, into that home uh, for eternity, and enjoy uh, that eternal weight of glory that you have stored up for them. For those of us who are weak and tired and hopeless and struggling, we pray, Father, that you give us a vision and a promise and a strength found only in a future with you for eternity. We pray, Father, that you would give them just an injection of hope through the promise of eternal life with you. For those of us who have ignored it, we pray you'd bring it to the front. Let it be our vision. Our, let it be the lens that we look at everything through. For those of us who have misunderstood it, forgive us and give us a high view of our eternal home with you. In all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.